in Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve brims with layers and nuances. We propose a bold perspective, both Adam and Eve, as well as the entire world, were created with inherent imperfections. This shapes our understanding of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. With insights from biblical scholar John Harvey Walton, we explore how has the modern view diverged from the text's original essence. Hello everyone, this is What's Your Pastor didn't tell you today. I am on with Dr. John Walton, but a different John Walton than you're probably expecting. How are you doing today, Dr. John Walton? And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello. Um, well, I am a not the Dr. Walton you, would ex you were expecting. Um, I'm his son. Um, I have just finished my doctorate at the University of St. Andrews, where I wrote my dissertation on the early few chapters of Genesis, specifically Genesis chapters two through four. And that is what we are here to talk about today. Very cool. All right. So let's see here. Yeah. So uh, that paper, can you just give us, you know, quick teaser? We're going to, you know, go through it. But just for, you know, people who just want a good summary of it, what would you say you talked about in it? What, you, what were the main arguing points? So the main points are, first of all, that um, the cha chapters two through four in Genesis are all one story. And it's not three different stories or two different stories like you've probably heard about in Sunday school. And not only that, but it is a story that's fairly isolated from the content around it. So it's more like, more like you would see how individual Psalms are isolated from the ones that come before and after them. There's not a continuous story running through them. So that's the first thing is that when we're looking at trying to figure out what this, what this text is saying, what the story is about, you're looking at something within that chunk and it's going to be pretty fairly well self-contained in, in that chunk. And the second important thing is that when, when you look at it this way and you look at what, what things are actually in there, what the text actually says, as opposed to the version of the story that you're used to hearing in Sunday school, it's not about what you think it's about. It's not really about how a, a world that was perfect and uncorrupted got a whole bunch of bad things in it and then what happened because of that it's really mm -hmm. more a story about um where order can be found in the world where what what um what circumstances of the world make the world into the way it should be hmm. so it's it's a different kind of story with a different kind of message than what you are probably used to hearing yeah. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I, w I was seriously, seriously impressed as I was telling you about this dissertation. Really great stuff. I'd, I'd recommend people check it out. It'll be in the description, a link to it. So free, easy, easy to access. Uh, definitely give it a read. So, uh, so we talked about what you know, what it is. Um, yeah, yeah. So you spent a considerable amount of time talking about what is the difference between goodness being the, the cosmic default and then badness being the cosmic default in regards to how we read the text of Genesis. So can you talk about our, how our modern conceptions might confuse how the ancient readers of Genesis would understand the text? 
So I, in order to do that, I should probably explain what I mean by the cosmic default. Mm -hmm. And that kind of refers to the state that we think the world exists in before creation happens. So if you've, in Christian theology, what you're used to hearing is that the world before creation consists of God by himself with the Trinity. And that, of course, is perfect and good. It's the highest state of being that anything could achieve because God himself is also perfect and good. Mm. And so we use that as the benchmark to try to evaluate everything that comes after. So when creation happens, then this kind of creates an issue. If it was so good and perfect, why did it ever change? Why does creation happen in the first place? And depending on who you ask in Christian theology, uh, it's either a bad thing that creation happened, that, that something something happened in heaven that it was kind of a mistake, or somebody made a mistake and then creation happened as a consequence of that, something like that. Or your more common um, Orthodox Christian theology is going to say that creation is a change in kind of the conditions, but it doesn't change its value. It's still it's still perfect and good and mm -hmm. because God willed it and God said it was good. It, the Bible says that God said it was good. <laughs> yeah. So that is in Christian theology, that's the cosmic default because we're kind of, when we're trying to think, think of what's good or bad, we kind of think about in terms of God and God's experience of the world. And that's kind of what we use to, to define those words of good and bad. Um, when you read creation accounts in ancient Near Eastern literature, and which are much more similar to the one we see in the Bible, we see that they have a different emphasis. Um, they define what's good or bad in terms of the human experience rather than the divine experience, because it's ultimately the, the one that they have. So they're inclined to see the cosmic default as being bad for humans. It's a kind of, it's a state of the world that humans don't live in because they haven't been created yet and couldn't live in because it's hostile to them. It's ocean and darkness, the things that share features of the world where they mm. can't and don't live. So they talk about this kind of, this pre-cosmic condition, which I call the, the cosmic default, is a world that's hostile to humans. It's hostile to human life and it's bad. Uh, the gods are usually to some extent a part of that it's they the people who write these texts don't really claim to know how the gods interact with it most of the time sometimes they speculate sometimes most of the time they don't the gods are just there and they're they're doing things that gods do and whatever it is it's not relevant to humans until they try to create humans so the the stories that they tell about the origin of the cosmos aren't even though they're written from the perspective of the gods sometimes they're not about the gods and how the gods experience the world they're about humans how exper humans experience the world and to some extent why there are humans at all why the gods decided that they needed such things or wanted such things and then how humans are supposed to live what humans are supposed to do mm -hmm. and right away you can start to see that this is a different kind of story with a different kind of priorities than you get when you're talking about this kind of abstract theology that we get in Christianity. Yeah, yeah, very, very different there. Okay, so, um, so just applying that to the, the Genesis text, so 
you've got you know God creating but 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 you know depending on your view of Genesis 1 1 right if if the the creation is you know create creation where there's already water there the, the chaotic waters right the disorder then you have from disorder to good creation and then I guess depending on how you connect that with Genesis 2 right then it seems like it's going to bad right so um, yeah. so what what are your thoughts on that there so that's that's very much in line with what some of my some of my father's work is um, I think that it's it's not really about a progression um, okay. so this isn't it's not telling Genesis isn't telling like a single continuous narrative of how the world happened and how it got to be the way that it is um it's closer to a the best way i can think of to describe it is that it's closer to a series of thought experiments about various ways that order in the human world could be manifested hmm. and actually in context was thought to be manifested and it's kind of a critique of these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So in in Genesis 1, which I didn't get to talk about much in my thesis, but I had to mention mm -hmm. this in passing, it's they're talking about setting up the humans as kind of semi-divine creatures with kind of a unique vocation within the world order relative to mm -hmm. both gods and animals. And this is fairly standard in the way that every every creation text we have thinks about humans. They're always these kind of divine hybrids with a unique kind of thing to do. And in Genesis 1, they are put on the earth to kind of do the work of the gods in place of the gods. They're um, doing things that the gods would normally have done, they're, and they're being mm. specifically... Uh, specifically endowed with the ability to do that by the, the language the Bible uses for that is being in the image of God. Um, they're being delegated to do a certain role. And that is, mm. that's how we see, see humanity most of the time in other, in other creation stories, they're being appointed by the gods and delegated to do a specific role. And it's usually one that the gods would have normally done themselves. That's why it's delegation and not, um, mm. not just assignment to something else. Um, so it's actually very, it's a very high view of humanity and puts, makes what they're doing seem very, very important. And in most of the literature that you see when humans are created this way, what they're doing is so important and so elevated that it's like, this is entirely what humans are for. This is humans doing this, this thing, this, um, it has to do with, uh, agriculture, civilization, cities, all the things that they were established to do is this is what humans are for. This is the place that humans are supposed to occupy. And Genesis 2, specifically well, Genesis 2 through 4, the whole thing, mm -hmm. is kind of pushing back against that idea a little bit and saying, mm -hmm. yes, but um, there's some there's some downsides to this. And it's it's not so much saying that it's bad or that it should have been something else or that it should have been mm. um, that there's a better way to go about achieving it. It's not any of that. It's a, mm. it's pointing out shortcomings 
mostly for the sake of saying, yes, that's all well and good, but mm. something else does better. Um, so it's like the idea is, yeah, all of these things, this divine delegation is good to have. You're supposed to have it. You're supposed to do that. That's absolutely all true, mm. but that's not all of it. And so I think the um, the very hard negative spin that Genesis is putting on Genesis two through four is putting on some of these ideas is meant to be a mostly rhetorically exaggerated counterpoint to the high to the high value that's given to them in the literature they're in conversation with. Hmm. Oh, very fascinating. Okay, so um, maybe just to help people understand a little bit more about this whole chaos and order language and evil as well. So um, could you talk about those three things in regards to how they are viewed in the ancient Near East? So the, the kind of default that represents what their highest value is, what these people, well, at least the people who are writing these texts, what they want and what they think is good we don't really have a good word for in English. Mm. Um, the word that I used for it is order because that's a way that the various words that they do use in their own languages get translated. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's some connotations for that in English as well that don't actually work. It's more the sense that we get is that the people who are who are writing these texts kind of have the idea that it's best for humans to the humans find their value and identity in being a part of something larger than themselves and taking a place within a structure that's larger than themselves. Hmm. That's where they define their sense of meaning. That's where they define their sense of purpose, their happiness, their sense of well-being. And again, we don't know how many people actually thought this way. Like if you went back in time and asked them, they probably had a diverse amount of opinions on this, just like yeah. we do now. We've only got the opinions of the people who are writing the texts, which is a very, very narrow demographic of people. And, but that's what we have to work with. And ultimately we're not trying to, to reconstruct ancient society and psychoanalyze the people. We're trying to discuss what this text is talking about. And to do that, we have to know what the people who wrote it thought was important. So order is the thing that they're kind of focused on. And it's this kind of structure that is greater than all of them in which they participate and it gives meaning and purpose and value to their lives. And so then they, they have to conceive of, in contrast to this, the absence of that order. And that order can be absent in a couple of different ways. It can be having never been established in the first place. So mm -hmm. kind of like um, if you think of order as a house, you can see um, an empty lot with a pile of construction materials on it. That's the absence of a house. And that's what the, that's what the pre-creation state is. That's what, that's what the world outside of what they considered the ordered, the ordered sphere was, which was really mm -hmm. their, their kingdom and their empire. Um, and that's one area that order can't exist. You can also imagine a house that's kind of been damaged or destroyed. That somebody, somebody went through it and trashed it. 
and they've they've done damage they've they've thrown up graffiti and all these other things and that's a different kind of absence of a house but it's a different it's a different thing and so there's the there's the kind of emptiness or absence that exists where where order was never established and but then there's also the undermining and corruption corrupting of it where it has been established and those are two kind of conceptually different things when you think about them in that way they're similar in that they're the absence of order but they're also they're, they're different in the way of how you deal with them and also whether or not you think that they're i guess in some way natural or proper to be that way hmm. okay and um so that's that's order um now did you talk about chaos there or would you say that's so, different so yeah so chaos is the is the state where order hasn't been established yet and again okay. that's that's not a word that they use they don't have one word for it not really mm. um but it's it's the world that exists before the metaphorical house or the structure was built gotcha. before and outside of um and it's what what returns if the house ever gets destroyed <laughs> okay so it's it's a yeah. kind of an eternal omnipresent state that exists before and around the structure and mm -hmm. it's also the state that will come in and take over if the structure ever collapses or gets removed mm -hmm. um evil what i called evil is the damage to the structure that happens from within mm. when the structure already exists okay and that's um the threat of evil is that if you let it go for long enough the house will collapse and then you'll be back in the condition where there's no house back into chaos <laughs> and so that's one reason why they're so worried about evil is because that's ultimately ultimately its consequences is that their structure will be destroyed mm. and but the, for for the purposes of my of my thesis, the emphasis mm -hmm. I wanted to make was that in order for evil, this kind of corruption and destruction to be a thing, there has to be a thing to corrupt and destroy. So when you're looking at a creation story like uh, like Genesis or like its its equivalents, they're talking about building a thing out of something that isn't there yet so there is nothing to corrupt there is nothing to destroy so there can't be evil yet mm -hmm. and one of the main points i made is that in genesis 2 through 3 especially they're still in the construction process the thing mm -hmm. that the the structure has not been built it's in the process of being built so it can't be, it can't revert from good to bad because it's never been made good. Not yet. And so when we, when we look at God in Genesis one, declaring things good, what it means is it's kind of signing off on different parts of the process. So it's like, if you're building a house again, um, you start off with your empty lot and then you put down a foundation and you can see the foundation's good. That doesn't mean your foundation's a house. If you stopped there, it wouldn't work. Um, so then you that you then go to the next stage. You start to put up the walls, and you can then you can look at the 
at all the joists and the and the structural support. And you see that that's good. That's still not a house either. Um, so it's it's still in this phase of establishing. And what I was trying to argue that what it ultimately is building, the house that it's building, is the covenant. And it doesn't get there. It doesn't even start like building that specifically. Mm until you get to Genesis 15 and it doesn't stop building it until you can argue when it actually stops um, either in Joshua or perhaps not even until mm. first Kings um, depending on how you how you see the the plot in that story running but uh, so yeah so what's what they're doing in the in Genesis 1 through 11 up, up before Abraham in Genesis 12 mm -hmm. is they're explaining, why they need to build this house. So they're kind of looking at all of the, all the various you know, metaphorical houses that people have. So, so, so some people say we've got, we have civilization and an agriculture and that's the house. That's the house that the gods built. And then some other people say, well, no, it's our empire. Our empire is the house that the gods built. And they're looking at these kinds of things and saying, no, that's not good enough. No, that's not good enough. This, Thing over here is mm -hmm. is the real house. It's the best way I can try to think of to explain it in this in this time scale. Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate it. That makes a lot of sense. So a uh, little bit of a curveball. So you talked about you said covenants like the main goal. You know, many have argued that Genesis one to eleven, you have Noah's covenant and you have um, mm -hmm. a covenant with Adam in Genesis one. Some people have argued. So you're not you're not a fan of those or no. I mean, they do use that term in with Noah to say that he has made mm -hmm. a covenant with the whole earth, but there is not really, there's no indication of a covenant with Adam, uh, anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. Um, the reason how they get that is they, ha they eventually have to start making sense of of Adam's story. And one of the ways they try to make sense of it is they see it as one of actually several allegories for Israel's own story. So when they read covenant into Genesis, they're really just reading Israel's narrative in the Deuteronomistic history back into Genesis. And there's a couple of reasons why they did that. And I do talk about mm. them, talk about them in, thesis but yeah. it's more to the point of that's a that's an imposition that comes from a reinterpretation of the story they have to add elements mm. that aren't there in the original and that means if you're trying to make sense of of the original then you can't really use that because that's not what it's about yeah i see okay um so uh second sub question uh, you talked to your book about how dualism came on the scene and kind of changed things. So originally it was like this cosmic default of, of disorder or however we want to call it, but, or chaos. And um, then dualism came. Uh, can you talk about the time period there? What happened? What changed? So that is, dualism comes onto the scene in the Hellenistic period. It's when, uh, when Jewish culture kind of merges with Greek culture. And they make a they make a hybrid together. Um, the Greeks 
they got the Greeks interacted with a lot the cultures of a lot of the people that they conquered, and mm -hmm. there's a back and forth exchange of ideas. Um, it's not clear to anybody where this idea first comes from. One of the one of the most common uh, arguments that you'll hear is that it comes out of um, Iranian religion, out of Zoroastrianism, which is the religion of the Persian Empire and has this kind of, it starts the same thing you see in, in Christian theology with the, with the good God and then evil kind of spawns out of that. Yeah. And uh, the other place where we find a similar narrative is in actually Platonic philosophy, where they start off with a world that I, that works according to like perfect mathematical reason and then gets from that changed <laughs> and it's not entirely clear really to anybody which of those ideas ends up influencing judaism because we can see the influence of both on various people who write mm. um and it's also again not necessarily clear what the people who created these ideas in the first place we're trying to do like um uh plato's idea of the perfectly rational cosmos might not actually have been a cosmology it might have been just been a allegorical description of the process of how human reason works mm -hmm. kind of extrapolated to a cosmic scale so it's it's less important where it came from and what it originally was than to see what was done with it and we can see actually very clearly what was what was done with it um so it has to do with less about what it is and where it comes from than what they try and do with it mm -hmm. and to kind of think about that we should look at um what questions were they asking mm -hmm. to which this kind of dualistic cosmology provided a meaningful answer. Mm. And there's a couple of things that they're looking at. Um, one of the important ones was why is our social political situation happening to us? Why are we in exile? Why are we being persecuted? Um, why are we a minority community? Our God is supposed to be this powerful cosmic deity. Why is this happening? And in order to ask that, they come up with a conception of God where their God is a, you know, perfectly just good law-abiding deity and he's punished them for evil and a lot of the a lot of the accounts in the hebrew bible are chosen and um respected because they tell the story of that happening and the reason why that's important is because if your god is good and just and law-abiding then he will reward you and prosper you if you do good so he he punishes evil and that explains why you got where you are but 
he will also reward you if you are good. And that's what the that's what the hope of Judaism is, that if they now keep the Torah and do what they in their own story of their of their past, do what they should have done all along, mm-hmm. their conditions will be reversed, they will be restored to a state of power and prosperity. Mm. Um, and that goes together with another idea, which is they need to kind of justify why their God did what he did in those stories. Um, because one thing that you have when Greek culture takes over is they get a very different idea of how order works um in the ancient near east and also in the bible order is kind of grounded in the king the king Mm -hmm. is the kind of source of order within the empire and kind of what he says goes he's in like in lockstep with the gods um usually working on their behalf israel modifies this slightly where their king actually is the god Um, Yahweh in the covenant is setting himself up in the role that would usually be held by a human emperor, um, where he's basically ruling by decrees based from the wisdom that in a human king that the gods have given from from a god that the god possesses innately. And they're just managing the world order kind of like an expert. The, um, The analogy that the Greeks used to describe it is like, like a doctor or an artist kind of using their expertise and intuition to guide the shape of the order that's under their jurisdiction. Um, the Greeks themselves don't like that. Uh, they had some some bad experiences with rulers of this kind. They called them tyrants, which is where our use of that word comes from, who would be basically unaccountable to anyone but themselves and kind of abuse that to, to create a state that was self-evidently not very well ordered. So their response to this was to create a theory of culture wherein everybody, including the king, was accountable to a rule of law that set above all of them. And there's a lot of questions in Greek philosophy about how exactly that's supposed to work and where exactly it comes from. and how how the people who decided what it what the specific laws of the state were knew that they were supposed to be the right laws um but judaism when it's interacting with this theory of culture decides to they they need that they need to get in on this they can't have their god be a lawless barbarian tyrant who's just ruling by intuition they need their god to both have given them a rule of law by which to govern their society in an ordered civilized manner because that's what that means and also have then been the kind of ruler who obeys that law themselves because it's above the law is above the ruler the law the king is also accountable to it so you get these two ideas together and it combines with if israel's god ever did anything to anyone it must have been according to the same rules that a human in his place would have and could have done the same thing. 
and that's when you start to get them looking for these stories about crime and punishment. They're mostly interested in themselves, so they want to know what they have done to earn Yahweh's displeasure. They're not really asking about other people. Um, Paul in Romans starts to ask about other people, which normally they wouldn't have bothered and didn't seem to be very interested in. Um, and that's when that's when Paul finds Genesis to be very useful um, because he sees Adam as so, as that story having consequences more universally than simply God's wrath against Israel. So something that could be applied more broadly. But it's still in this idea of, within the context of this idea of trying to make Israel's God into a law-abiding lawgiver because of how important that idea is for order in general. Hmm. Okay, so just specifically, when does this change in Israel's history, the, the shift of how they see order? It occurs under their under the Greek Empire. So this is roughly 300 BC. This is about um, about two to 300 years after the Bible stops being written. Gotcha. Um, and about also about another two to 300 years before the New Testament starts starts being written. Mm -hmm. So it's in that it's in that period in between them when the, it's when the mm -hmm. language switches from Hebrew and Aramaic to Greek. And it's not a, you can identify the, the process that, that their thought goes through and you can see the things they're interacting with. There've been some people who did studies on them. They're in my bibliography. Um, it's not, it's not a monolithic change, but it is a trend mm. that's identifiable, not only in Judaism, but in some of the other cultures that, that the Greeks took over. Mm. And again, it's precisely because they want to, they want their ancestral ancestral heritage to be seen as ordered and civilized. So they've once they have this new definition of what that actually is, mm -hmm. they need to redefine their history as having always been that way. Otherwise, they because nobody would just want to sit there and go, "Yep, well, I guess we're barbarians." Then <laughs> nobody does that. Um, so it's it's kind it's kind of trying a way to to fit themselves into this new new culture and the the change in ideas that mm. came with it very very interesting okay so what about the the origin of evil so you know people see genesis as the origin of evil you know that's what adam did um you argue that's not true that's not what it is so what do you you, you kind of already told us what it was um but where does this idea of it becoming the origin of evil where does that start out as so that comes when you ask the question about it. So the the answers you get from a book that the text that you're looking at um, mm -hmm. are going to be determined by the questions you ask. So the the Jewish readers in the in the Second Temple period are interested in this question of how can our God be a just and law-abiding ruler mm. and so they have to kind of rationalize um we don't really see a lot like i said a lot of 
them trying to use Adam as an explanation for why the world is the way they is. it is. They usually use him as an allegory. So what had because they kind of want to retell their own story in every one of the biblical narratives. So they even even they are not asking the same questions we ask. Um, they're not they're not asking why, you know, why do Gentiles have to die? Um, they're asking why did God why does God let us be let us be persecuted? So they come up with this kind of model of divine behavior, which again over and over is used to just reinforce this idea of God is just, God is lawful, God is law abiding. If we abide mm-hmm. by the law, we will be rewarded, we will be restored. You want your deity to be kind of bound in this way because it means that you can then you're in a position to expect things from them um in the ancient near east they don't really ask this question they don't they they don't ask why does evil happen why do people die um the answer that they give when it comes up is just because the gods because that's how the gods set it up and that's really the only answer they have there isn't a reason for it beyond that's Mm. just what they did and we don't know um so having them try to give a reason for the god's behavior it's not only kind of pointless um and you can actually see in there's some biblical books that talk about this too in job and ecclesiastes where they try to come up with answers and they realize it's pointless um it's also kind of impious because it means that you assume that the gods operate on the same scale as you um if the gods could give you a reason that you would understand it means that their wisdom works the same way that yours does and that their logic and their reasons work the same way as yours do. And that's kind of impious. Um, they don't, ancient Near Eastern peoples don't seem to like this very much. So when they're not happy with the way the world is going, for whatever reason, um, if, if a city got destroyed that they weren't happy about, or if they're sick and they don't think they should be, or it's mostly, they don't, they don't ask about, you know, what did we do that let us earn this. Um, they ask this, they do sometimes ask, what can I do to appease your wrath to the, to whatever God they think is, they think has afflicted them. Um, and if they think a God has afflicted them, they'll, there'll usually be an indication of that. There'll be an omen or something. Uh, and sometimes they don't get an answer. So they just say, well, that's, that's the way it is. Um, the, the God who decreed this is wise and powerful and that's good enough for us because it's really all they can do. Um, so when you see stories talking about why, why bad things are happening, they don't try to explain them in terms of things that earned it necessarily. Hmm. Um, and they don't even ask the question of why do people die as if that was something that might not, that could be an option otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, I've, I've had a number of scholars and they've talked about how, uh, 
you when you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran and all that, they've got all these texts and the Adam is very, very, very rarely the origin of evil in the yep. world. Yep. It's it's um you know, a lot of times it's the sons of God and there's all kinds of other options and there's I don't I can't remember which one it is, but it's like evil is the it's it's you that it's it's one of the biblical texts I can't remember. But um so you you kind of see that shift where in the ancient Near East they're not asking that question and then even in the Qumran area, they're still not really asking that question. There's like one or two people that are maybe asking it. But then you get in later on in, in I guess, Christian history where the people start asking or people start trying to attempt to explain like where evil came from. And, you know, that's what they decide. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, they start off with it's not usually Adam. Uh, Cain is popular. Um people before the flood in general are popular. Um, but again, even when they're telling these stories, they're more archetypal examples of the way God works. So if like, if you look at, um, I think it's in second Peter, um, there's a list of all of the people God punished, um, from, uh, that from Cain and Korah and the sons of God. And, um, people in Noah's time and the whole, the whole list of them. And it's mostly just mm -hmm. saying, and that's examples of how God works. So, you know, you're not going to get, you're no exception to this. So they're more, they're more examples rather than explanations and origin stories. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so the idea that needs to be an explanation it seems to be a mostly Christian thing. Hmm. And I didn't do enough specific research into why I saw how, hmm. so I took, I took some look, a look as to how, as to how the doctrine of original sin is justified, how it uses when, what, what text it uses, what, what it's interested in. Um, and how it doesn't really rely on Genesis, it relies mostly on Romans. Um, but as to why that issue was important, I studied it a lot less. It would mm. be an interesting thing to look at. Yeah, next paper, next yes. dissertation, right? Uh, so <laughs> you mentioned how many see the garden as sacred space as well as a temple garden, but you see it as a palace garden. Could you talk about the significance of that and like, what are a couple of reasons why you think so? So that has to do with, again, kind of, it's more about eliminating wrong ideas than it is about it being actually important. The garden is mentioned mostly in passing. Um, it's not a, it's not a huge detail. Most of the detail given to it is in its geography, trying to, trying to say where it is. Um, but more modern people who, read this story, maybe ancient people as well. I didn't look at it in a lot of detail because I was talking to modern people have this idea that the garden is this kind of magical, sacred, holy space, kind of like what the temple sanctuary is in Exodus Leviticus. And they're using that as a framework to try to understand the story. So a lot of what I was trying to do is to say that, no, actually, 
that's not what it is. There's no evidence in the text itself that that's what it's about. Because once again, it's about looking at the details that are there as opposed to the details we're just assuming or the details that we heard heard about in Sunday school. Because the thing is, um, Adam and Eve in the garden is a very well-known story. Even people who have never read the Bible know this story. Even people who don't know it's in the Bible know this story. Um, but that familiarity means that we tend to make a lot of assumptions about what it says and what it doesn't say. Like, for example, it never mentions Satan at all. Um, most people don't know that. Most people assume that the serpent either is Satan or is associated with Satan. It's never mentioned. It's a detail that got added in, in reception as an interpretation. But when you try to talk to people about it, you know, you now have to deal with that assumption because it's one that they have. So when I was talking about the temple garden, it's, it's not a detail that's important to the text. It's a misconception about what that people have about what the garden is and what the humans were doing there. So what you'll, what you'll hear a lot is the idea of the garden being a sacred space, which is then defiled. This is, has to do with the idea of having a good thing that is corrupted. And in order to do that, they use metaphors of defiling the temple and defiling the sanctuary, which comes up throughout places like Ezekiel and Leviticus as justifications for the exile. Um, but that language never occurs in Genesis itself. Even in Genesis 3, God doesn't say you have defiled, you have polluted. There's words for that, and it doesn't, it doesn't use them. Um, and there's also the idea of what modern people think priests are when, when they say that Adam and Eve are priests isn't really the same thing that they would have been to the ancient audience. Like we, we kind of see priests as being the, you know, the guardians of, of God's holiness or like soldiers or crusaders who are going out to like knights of holiness um, and all of this. And their priests are ritual specialists. Their job is to mediate between the people and the gods by performing the rituals correctly. They're, they're really closer to lawyers if you think about it. Like, um, a lawyer's job is to mediate between a civilian and usually the government by making sure that all the right processes are followed. Priests are more like that. Um, and in, in Genesis, there's obviously there's no rituals and there's no other people. So if Adam and Eve are temple personnel, they're a different kind of temple personnel than priests. And one of my sources um, has develops this idea that they're actually a form of temple slave whose job it is to kind of tend the temple's garden to make to make food for the deity and um they would have these and he showed he shows that that they did have these that this is a thing temples have gardens whose job it is to that's where they get the food that they feed the god because that's what the temple is the temple is god's it's kind of like a resort for gods um so the garden in that case would be like the kitchen and adam would be the, the kitchen slave which even if that's that's a very different metaphor than him being a priest, uh, I also don't think it's the correct one because they don't show God ever eating from any of the food in the garden. Actually, it's kind of conspicuously absent. So arguing that it's a palace garden means that palace garden is exactly like what we think of them today. It's a park or grounds that's 
next to the palace to which whose purpose is to be beautiful to be a this monumental work of art that shows off how how splendid the the person was who was able to make this thing to cause it to be made to have the wisdom to know that it was going to be made and then to establish it and then adam is the gardener he's the groundskeeper um and i think that's kind of important because i mean to the extent that it is because it's mentioned it's mentioned in passing but it still is mentioned because it kind of shows that genesis isn't isn't interested in reevaluating the human vocation humans are created to work the ground in some capacity and so when adam gets created and put to work he's working the ground this is what this is what everybody who they're talking about knows humans are supposed to do and Genesis isn't really questioning that. It's not that it's not that humans were originally created as ritual specialists and then got demoted to farmers. They were always farmers. Just question of of where and how, which has to do with some other things, but not that particular detail. That's why I think it's mm. that's why I think yeah. it's mentioned at all, but I also think it's not very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um I just wanna list this off here just because um, you know, I, I've brought up this idea to a couple of scholars and they were like, well, you know, what about these parallels? So, I mean, you have the cherubim, obviously, you know, they're, they're put at the garden and, you know, really a, a big place we see them is in the temple and the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. And there's a really big focus of the cherubim there. And then you have the trees, you know, the big focus of the temple is the trees, you know, Solomon's temple. And then, um, you also have, uh, kind of. I don't know if there's really much of a tree. There's there's one tree, the the lamp tree, like the the menorah is shaped like it's very symbolic of a tree. Mm -hmm. And then um, you know in Ezekiel you have the idea of of rivers coming out from the temple, and of course you know Eden has uh, you know so there's there's definitely similarities there, but you don't think that's enough to say hey this is describing that scene. No, I think they're both using the same imagery but they're not using they're not it's not like equating one to the other so things like the cherubim and the trees and rivers as symbols of sources of fertility is they're all indicative of divine space they're associated with the divine realm the place in the, the part of the world where the gods live mm. and i think that both the garden and the temple are using that imagery mm. but i don't think that that means they're the same thing mm. that the the temple is the garden and the garden is a temple they're both divine space they're both examples of divine space yeah but they're not the same and one of the one of the precedents we have for thinking this way is that in in sumerian mythology they've got a a little chunk of divine space that you can that you can walk to it's called it's called uh, dilmun and it's they think it's um modern bahrain it's an island in the persian gulf and the way they describe this place is in very similarly with fantastic trees source of fertility it's the place where humans were original with the gods originally established humanity um but it's not a temple there's no there's no priest there it's not where humans go to bring their offerings to interact with the gods it's just a 
it's kind of the special space where the divine realm and the human realm interact. You also have like on the tops of mountains is another one. Like if you remember Mount Olympus from Greek mythology, you can climb, you can climb up to that. Um, yeah. It's so this, uh, and there's the same thing on the top of, uh, top of Mount, Mount Sinai is another one of these. It's where Yahweh lives. Um, there's another mountain called Zaphon in North of Israel, which is where mm. the God Bell lives. So there's this idea that, there is divine geographic space that's not a temple doesn't serve the purpose of a temple um but it still has a lot of those same properties associated with it of of fertility of life of the center of order because that's what divine space is hmm. Hmm. i see i see what you're saying okay um so let's keep continuing here so um, in your dissertation, this was a really big point here. So, you know, the, the text of Genesis 2 starts with, you know, there's no plants, no shrub, no worker, no gra no good for man to be alone. Um, you know, all this stuff, it's like, you know, things are missing. We're going to fix it. So most people have thought like, okay, so Genesis 5, it's good. It's perfect. And then Genesis 6, like we're still got to get the perfect. It's, it's. It's, but then at the end of Genesis, uh, sorry, not just six, day six, day six, um, you know, God says it's good again. But Genesis, you're saying that Genesis two basically starts as, you know, disorder. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about that? So that has to do with, again, the idea of reading it as an isolated unit. That there's not, there's not a narrative continuity between Genesis one and Genesis two. Um, they're talking about some overlapping ideas, but we don't really expect to see it moving that in, moving in the same narrative timeline, I guess. So what's really important though, is that the negations at the start aren't really there to locate the story in time. So like, for example, there, there's, there's kind of a problem when, um, if you try to figure out when plants are created relative to humans, the timeline in Genesis one and two are different. Um, because so the, it's more the point that the negations aren't there to locate the events of Genesis two onto some broader timeline. They're there to tell you what the story's about. Mm -hmm. um, and we see this again in a lot of ancient Eastern creation stories. They start off with, in the days when there was no A, B, C, D, E, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and the story is ultimately going to be about how those things happened and why they were established. So when you, when you, when you hear the story of Genesis 2 in Sunday School, the negations they start with are, you know, when God created the world, there was no pain, there was no death, there was no suffering, there was no animal predation, there was any of these things. But those aren't the negations that, Genesis itself has and never says any of that. Um, and that's again, one of these indications that that's not what the story is about. It's not, it's not about how those things were established. It's about how the things it says weren't there mm -hmm. were established, which has to do with cultivated plants, humans to work them. Mm -hmm. And then the, the task of humans doing those things that orients you to the story's focus. Yeah. So can you talk about why an ancient Near Eastern person would say, 
Oh, no shrub, no person to till the ground. That's disorder. That's bad. Why, why would people think that? Because this is the idea that humans are made to establish civilization is just kind of an assumption that they have. Um, and in Genesis, we actually, they don't show humans doing other things, but in other texts, in other texts, they do. Um, before the gods give humans agriculture, they show the humans walking around on all fours, eating grass like animals. Mm-hmm. And a lot of when, when we have to read this, we kind of just have to assume that this was a bad state um, because of the way it's presented and because of the way, the kind of derogatory way that they talk about people who are still in this state. Um, so this is, this is part of when, when the comparative literature is useful because we have to know that the values that they assign to things, mm-hmm. like, um, if you're, a if you're a particular brand of hippies, for example, you, you might think that living na- naked in nature is wonderful and that the, that civilization is a corruption of a, of a good state. You actually see this in, in some Greek philosophy. Um, and other times, if you're a bah, if you're a person who's more more accustomed to what we would call civilized living, you would say that no, actually, living in cities and having clothes and like being able to cook our food is better. Um, and the story is not really juxtaposing those two and defending one as opposed to the other. It just assumes, and we have to guess from the comparative literature that it's we know it's in contact with what it would have assumed and one of those one of the ways we can tell this that that the bible's not changing this is that the idea of being naked in nature never gets restored so one of the things that you see very consistently both in the bible and in other literature is that order when when the when the ideal state of order is established it tends to be sustained they want to they want to keep it um, keep it the way it is once mm-hmm. it gets set up. So it does get disrupted periodically um, by evil or by sometimes by the gods themselves. But after that, it always gets put back. So you can one of the ways you can tell what the ideal state is is whether or not it gets put back or whether or not there's a hope <laughs> for it to get put back. Yeah. And there's nowhere in in, in the Bible you, or in any other literature that I've been able to find anyway, of humans longing to be returned to the natural state to mm-hmm. say, you know, we were, we were better off naked. We were better off without tilling the ground. Um, you see that in kind of more, more modern kind of romantic justifications for the garden of of the garden of eden story but you don't see that in any kind of ancient literature and you don't see it in the bible Mm. um even even most of the most of your christian reception that sees sees that state as being an being ideal sees it as a spiritual allegory so adam and eve are spiritually uncorrupted in a state of spiritual innocence it's not actual physical living naked in the woods because nobody nobody really wants that not for a very very long time in the in the reception tradition of this Mm -hmm. material so 
that's in that itself is an indication that those things are are not good mm-hmm. yeah um so just to, to correct myself earlier so uh, a lot of the people that actually they say like genesis 2 is part of day 6 is that genesis 2 it starts with these things missing but they're not they're not bad in themselves um but this is not really a correct way to look at it from an ancient near eastern mindset right the, like the start of it is bad of Genesis yeah. two that it is missing this like think of the desert and an ancient Near Eastern mindset where there you know there's no water there's no uh, society to keep you safe there's animals um, you know which is like a, a big thing where Jesus he goes out into the desert when he's tested by Satan um, because he, he doesn't have any food or water or anything like that to to that's the, the purpose there but. Um, and then uh, just to clarify, uh, make it you know abundantly obvious what you're saying there. So with uh, they're naked. So you think it, that at the end, it would, the very last verse of Genesis two, there it says uh, you know they're naked and they're not ashamed. Um, and you're saying that hey, that's a point by the the writer that it's like hey though no, they're they're still in that chaotic state, yeah. and and we need to figure this out right. Right. So that's that's another one of these where you have to know how that state gets evaluated to know whether or not it's good or bad. Um, and there's no instance in in the Bible and no instance really anywhere else in ancient literature where being naked is good. Uh, it's always it's always a deprivation. It's always a lack of something that should be there. Um, and so what most people try to do is they try to say that they take the qualifier but they were unashamed as a way of saying that this is a this is such a state of goodness that it's never been replicated anywhere else this is the one this is the one time when this was good and that shows how exceptional the state they were living in is but there's when you take something that's bad and then say Mm -hmm. and they weren't ashamed of it that comes up a couple other times in the text and it always makes it worse. So the fact that, so you are one of the main ones in, um, so one of the Jeremiah and it's, um, you are committing idolatry and you are not even ashamed. And it's, uh, it's the, the connotation of that word is that you should be, and you're not, and that's really bad. Mm. And given the way that, nakedness is usually understood and also the fact that it is very explicitly corrected in the next section when they are when they are given both shame and clothing which in that context they are supposed to have is a sign that this is actually part of the construction process yeah so uh, in the text of genesis you have the garden of eden you have a tree of life in there and apparently it it gives you immortality Sometimes it's associated with healing. Um, other texts outside the Bible talk about a, some type of immortality. You have Epic of Gilgamesh, Adapa. Uh, can you talk about um, how we can use or look at these other texts to help us understand what's going on with this immortality in the text of Genesis? So, so earlier I said that they don't really ask the question of why people die. Um, but they do have they do have some people who aren't really happy with this 
and so they want to, <laughs> they want to say, well, so what? So we're going to die. What do we do about that? Mm. And Gilgamesh in particular is interesting because it shows its character, who is like almost superhuman, and he's yeah. he's partially god. He's the mightiest human who ever lived. Uh, sees his own impending fate of death and decides that he's going to do something about this. And so he goes on this epic quest to try to discover the secret of immortality, um, which includes hiking all the way into the divine realm and talking to the one human who ever achieved it. And the point of that conversation ultimately is the gods decreed mortality for humans. There's nothing you can do about it. So stop looking. It's a waste of your time. And it's about less about, he doesn't get any explanation for why humans are mortal. There's no origin story. The, the, they don't say, well, back in the day, humans used to be immortal, but then they really annoyed the gods and the gods gave them mortality. Um, it doesn't say anything like that. It just says, um, the gods won't, the gods gave it to me, the flood hero under exceptional circumstances, they won't give it to you. Go deal with it. Um, and then it, so the story is really about, again, what place the humans should have in the world order. Being immortal isn't the place for humans because the gods said it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And there's no explanation beyond that. There's just what do we do with that now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see. Really interesting. So, uh, so you think the same thing's going on in Genesis? So... I think the same thing's going on in Genesis. That yeah. it's it's talking about that the place for humans the the place the place where humans find their structure is not in the divine realm being immortal and it kind of also assumes that their audience would have known that um and it's not trying to not trying to tell them otherwise it's mm-hmm. the, what it's really interested in where it's not trying to like correct Gilgamesh and say that, no, um, you really should pursue immortality. And this is how you go about doing it. He just did it wrong. Um, they're disagreeing with Gilgamesh over what you should do uh, in order to kind of provide a, provide a facsimile for it. So what they tell Gilgamesh to do is to go and, be a hero, builder king, culture hero. Um, all of these great achievements leave a gra- leave a grand legacy for himself that people can mm-hmm. read about him for millennia to come. Which, of course, we do read about him for millennia to come, and that that is the best thing that you can do. Um, Genesis, particularly in Genesis four, doesn't really think that that's a good thing that humans should be trying to do with their time. Um, uh, you see this, you see Ecclesiastes talks about this as well. What should humans do with their time? And Ecclesiastes, when it addresses this question, says that humans should eat and drink and take pleasure in their work because that's the best you can do. Um, it very specifically doesn't, doesn't like this idea of trying to store up a grand legacy and grand achievements for yourself because it's meaningless. <laughs> they make that point yeah. very specifically. Um, mm-hmm. Genesis doesn't go that far. They don't say that it's meaningless, but um, they do show that it doesn't work very well. Mm-hmm. And 
what they want you to do, what they want humans to do instead is to um, reproduce and attain, attain immortality by living on through their, through future generations by uh, essentially making their community persist forward in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, that's really what it's interested in. It's making, it's saying that that's this, what humans should do is perpetuate human community and live on through their descendants, not do these grand monumental projects and live on through their legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but both of those, both of those perspectives agree that um, real immortality in the divine realm is not an option and it's not really worth pursuing. All right. So in, um, you know, a big part of your dissertation was death. All right. So what did the tree of knowledge of good and evil do and how does that relate to death? So what is your view on that? So that's a couple of different questions, actually. Um, What the tree of knowledge of good and evil does is it gives them a quality that in uh, in ancient or Eastern texts on this subject, they translate as intelligence or understanding. Hmm. And it's basically a capacity to know what the, what, what the world order, what the structure of the world is supposed to look like, and also the capacity to bring it about. Hmm. So it's the main property that separates humans from animals and also civilized humans from uncivilized humans. And it's what gives them the capacity to be like the gods in the sense of establishing ordered structures. And so that itself doesn't confer, doesn't confer death. Um, It's a thing that people are supposed to have. Everyone knows people are supposed to have this. When people get it, it's a good thing. so but genesis acknowledges that it's a good thing uh they never say that humans should be stripped of this there's no there's no there's no talk of restoration just like there's no restoration of humans to a naked in nature state there's no there's no talk about restoring humans stripping the knowledge of good and evil away from them it's something that's good to have it's something that's commended every time people use it um it's more about whether that itself, whether humans doing this work of establishing world structures is the objective of human existence, whether that's the best that humans can do. Mm-hmm. And while it's good for humans to do, it's not, it's not the best that they can do. Um, yeah. And that is shown by by devaluating it or by, by devaluing it in the course of the story. And the way that they devalue it is by showing the gods being unhappy with them having it. This is a literary device we see in a couple of other places as well, where um, order and the valuable structures are achieved with the help of the gods always. So if you want to show that something really isn't as valuable as you might have thought it was, one of the ways you do that is tell a story about it where the gods don't approve of it. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like, this is one of these other things that we have to assume from context would be self-evidently valuable just because of the way it's always it's used every other place we see this idea. But so it's like if you imagine something, 
that we would like today. So if imagine something that you think would um, that God would self-evidently want you to do and would self-evidently good be good. Um, like in a Christian context, maybe this is um, this, maybe it's spreading the gospel. Maybe it's uh, um, giving to charity or something and so, something that we would imagine. Of course, God wants you to do this. How could he not? This is it's so self-evident. We don't even think about it. Yeah. But then you imagine the effect of a story where some people are trying to spread the gospel and give to the poor. And God says, no, don't do that. And that's kind of what, what it is. And it's more the point of, it's not saying that that's bad that no one should ever do, but it's, it has the impact of you thought that this was the most important thing, that this was everything you were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Turns out it's not. Um, and again, the reason why it's not is because the God could tell you not to do it. Mm. Yeah. Um, and just before you answer that other question of what that death is, um, yeah, I mean, I, you kind of really see that in the text laid out. So this contrast of order and then this like, you know, disordered state of like nakedness and you, you act like a animal basically and or yeah you act like an animal you don't wear clothes so then god you know makes them order after that gives them clothes and then later you see them the this descendants they make a city and then there's all these instruments and and i guess in your eyes that's how they consider themselves ordered but it just happens to be in the line where it's it's cain's line which is you know seen in a negative light right yeah so yeah. So that has to do with, again, they're trying to trying to establish order, and these things are, are good for people to have. They never get taken away. They never get, there's never a fantasy about a time when all these things will be taken away. Hmm. But they're done by the line of Cain, who is under a divine curse. Again, hmm. this is the idea of they're doing it without the support of the gods, which is not, it's not a way of saying this is something that should never be done, or it's not saying that it should be done, but only with the support of the gods, although that's that's kind of implied by the by the use of the device itself. It's more that this stuff is not as valuable as you think it is. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and death. Okay, so death. what is death? Well, that's actually one of the questions that I looked at. What is death? Um, and how you how you think of death has to do both of which both with what you think they're potentially trying to avoid and also what happens to them. So a good way that, look, when we think of death, we tend to think of it as a specific, a specific state that you, that gets, that you get put in. So um, being dead is kind of like maybe being in jail. It's, it's something that happens to you that has a couple of associations with it. Um, I think that in the, in the ancient concept, especially in the way it's set up in Genesis, it's less about a thing that happens to you and more about a thing you leave behind. Hmm. So death, we can probably think about maybe the same way we think about something like deportation or displacement. Um, when you're deported, you lose a bunch of stuff. You lose your your home, your possibly your family, your friends, your your livelihood, 
either uprooted and thrown off to somewhere else, which may or may not be somewhat pleasant, but it's more about, it's about what you lost. And when you want to avoid being deported, it's because you want to keep all of those things. And that's more kind of how they see death. It's not a specific set of circumstances that are given to you. It's about, it's an absence and a negation. And it has to do with you being removed from, from the human world, from everything that, from, from that structure, again, the thing, the thing that defines your, your identity and defines your, your being, your purpose, mm -hmm. your value. It's losing all of that. Yeah. And that's why people are afraid of it. Um, there are other ways, of course, that you can lose all of these things other than physically dying. Um, uh, being deported, of course, is one of them. Um, you can also get very sick. You can be shamed. You can be um, in some other ways stripped of this status and position within the ordered structure. And any of those can be actually described in literature as dying. We see it actually it's not that uncommon there's a couple of them in the psalms where um he's like i went down into death but you saved me he's he's he never physically died he's talking about being if this is david he's talking about being sent off into the wilderness um there's when somebody gets gets either very sick or very shamed or otherwise socially um depersonalized um, mm -hmm. the people who are left behind will sometimes mourn them as if they were dead. Um, we see some examples of that. Hmm. So when Adam and Eve are warned that they will die, they're more being warned about what they're going to lose than being warned about something that's specifically going to happen to them. Mm -hmm. And what they're going to lose is this, this ordered structure, everything that makes human existence worth having and worth existing mm -hmm. for. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so in your writings, you you called it kind of like a metaphor, but um, I, maybe maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like that's just a different way to view death. It, do you agree yeah. with that or what? Yes, that's, that's probably a better way of thinking of it, is that it's a... That it's a different way of classifying what it means. Um, it's it's a metaphor because, you know, death also means something. It means the transition out of the world of the living, which can be used to describe other things metaphorically. Since Adam and Eve don't actually do that, it is a metaphor, but it's the state that they experience as a result is effectively the same. So question of emphasis more than more than yeah. kind of literal or figurative yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I, I just didn't um i just want to make sure i was understanding it right yeah so um uh, a, a big question that i had personally was uh if if you're going to say that this is like how they view death like it seems kind of like be kind of rare in at least the genesis text and the reason i say that is because you have such an influence of, hey, Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel, that's that's real death, that's literal death, okay? And then you have Lamech, and that's, that's literal death too, right? He's talking about killing people. And then Genesis 5, it's, it's a whole genealogy of people dying. So it seems like 
you know, a lot of people argued that, hey, if those things are about death, this also has to be about death of, of God saying, hey, you're going to die. So do you agree or disagree about that? I disagree. I don't think that any of those are actually about death. Really? Um, okay. So there is a difference between dying as in losing the losing all of the things that that you had that make living and existing worth having and killing um inflicting that state on somebody else so the emphasis on cain and abel is not that abel died um it's that cain did a thing to abel and it's not even the emphasis of the thing of what thing Cain, what thing Cain, what thing Cain <laughs> did, isn't actually incredibly important. It's fratricide is one of the worst things you can do, given the way this culture values community and hierarchy and mm. the importance of family. So, it's showing Cain doing a very very bad thing and that's more what's important it's keen it's the magnitude of the evil of the act is what makes the point not necessarily the details of what it is Mm -hmm. um and likewise lamech when he is talking about killing people he is he's not repeating cain's murder of abel he's repeating cain's heroic destiny in in 415 where where yahweh says um uh cain anyone who harms cain will be avenged sevenfold mm-hmm. um so he's kind of he's not glorifying cain's murder of abel they're actually one of the point i made points i made is he might not even know about it um he's glorifying this kind of divinely appointed triumph over enemies and that has to do more with the way that the that the text is discussing the value of a heroic legacy um so I, you can kind of imagine if we were telling this story to a modern audience the the effect that we would have of if Cain were depicted as a pedophile and then somebody several generations later was bragging about how Cain, how great Cain was and how they were just like him. Um, that's kind of the effect that it has. It's that the person reading the story, because they yeah. were told they had no details about Cain, know that um, you don't want to be like Cain is. You don't want to be the kind <laughs> of person. This is bad. And if Lamech knew that, then he would be kind of embarrassed. He doesn't know that. And that's the point that it's making. It's a dramatic irony. That I see. this is this is how ridiculous it is to trust in legacy and brag about things as legacy because look what it made you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so just for clarity, uh, Genesis four, where Cain kills Abel and Lamech, the the folk. Are you saying that there is literal death in there, but that's just not the focus? Is that what you're saying? There is, but it's not the focus. It's not okay. important. I got gotcha. you. All um, right. So, so what about and, Genesis five? I would also say in Genesis 5, it's not important. Um, Okay. uh, So in in Genesis 3, um, Yahweh says that, you know, you will return to the ground from which you were taken. That's a a reference to death. It's a reference to literal death. But what he's really talking about is what's going to happen between now and then. 
um, talking about you will, by the sweat of the by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food, and his literal physical death is essentially just a just the end of that sentence of that of that um, the what of the fate he's been sentenced to will end with his physical death, and it's but it's more of a time limit. It's more less than emphasizing the event. Uh, you see the same thing in in numbers when when Yahweh says um, you will wander in the wilderness until your bodies fall. It's it's setting a time limit. It's not not really sentencing them to death because in that case, of course, they'll always were, their bodies were always were going to fall someplace. Um, dying in the wilderness is not what they would be, they had been hoping to have happen to them. So it's not mm-hmm. good, but it's not really the point either. It's more about the the state that they're in the state that they will die in and um, the amount of time that's, that passes the, the state they'll experience and the amount of time that will pass between when the sentence is made and when it will be finished. Mm. Yeah. And so in Genesis five, the emphasis is not that is not on. And then he died. The actual emphasis is on, and he had many other sons and daughters, which gets repeated throughout the entire genealogy as well. And the reason for that is because Genesis, that that unit goes from 5-1 to 6-8. That is about human multiplication on the earth. And so its emphasis is on the human expanding population. So Adam has, lives for 800 years, had many other sons and daughters, and then he died. The, mm. his death is kind of an aside that shows that that process of longevity and reproduction has now kind of stopped. And the emphasis of the very long time scales and the, and had many other sons and daughters, many sons and daughters, mm. many sons and daughters, this is showing how fast humans are reproducing and multiplying mm. because that's, that's what it's about. And um, you know that that's what it's about because when the narrative segment starts in six, one, it says, in those days when humans began to multiply on the earth. Oh, really, really fascinating. Now, just just for just to point this out, so um, you're saying that it's it's more of an emphasis of, um, well, maybe you can repeat that one more time. So, it's about what, what is death? What is death in this case? So, just in this case, it. it's just a, it's just a, it's just the terminus of the process that they're describing. Mm-hmm. So, Adam lived 800 years and had a lot of children is the important bit. Mm-hmm. And then he oh. died just mm-hmm. means he stopped doing that. Okay. Fair um, enough. And oh. that's, it's effectively a transition to the next person who also did that and then stopped. Mm-hmm. And then the next person mm-hmm. who did that and then stopped. And the next person who did that and then stopped. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, their death isn't the point of the story. That's the point is, and we, we actually see this both in in Genesis 6 itself, and also this is one of the ones where we're, where we're pretty sure we know what text it's interacting with. And there's a, the in the Babylonian flood myths, human overpopulation becomes a problem. And one of the reasons why the gods end up sending the flood is so they can deal with that problem. So... 
Genesis 5 is setting up that same scenario. They're going to have a slightly different spin on it, mm-hmm. but they're, they're setting up the same thing. And eventually when, when Yahweh says, uh, my spirit will not abide with humanity forever, the days will be numbered at 120 years, that's a solution to the population expansion. Mm. But that's in contrast to showing how long they had been living and by extension, how many people they had been producing. Yeah. So a big argument for this influence of death is that Genesis 11 doesn't have this mention of death. So, but if you're, if the reason for binging death is to somewhat explain the, the long life of people multiplying in order to reference Genesis um, six and how they, you know, went over the earth or whatever, then, um, then that makes sense. Did I sum up that well? Uh, yeah. So the idea of they don't usually include, and then he died in a genealogy because they don't have to. Of course they, of course they <laughs> did. Um, so it's more about emphasizing the length yeah. of the lifespans and yeah. the idea of humans before the flood living inordinately long times is something that shows up in comparative literature as well. So this was mm. a this was a well known thing in in Atrahasis and the Babylonian flood myth, they introduce human mortality after the flood as mm. a form of population control. Um, in Genesis, it happens before, but it's the same, the same kind, the same kind of idea. There's a, we have a genealogy of primordial history that shows the Kings reigning for tens or hundreds of thousands of years before the flood, which then after the flood reduces substantially. So this is a, it's an idea that they had. We're not, nobody's really entirely sure why, but it's more important to know that that is, that's part of the conversation that the Genesis is having. And even those, even, even in, in Atrahasis before, before mortality is introduced by the gods, the humans still die. Um, the gods kill them off a little more piecemeal, but it's more, <laughs> they introduce one specific mechanism of death. They put, they put it's death by old age that they introduce. They put a time limit on, on human lifespan specifically to stop how quickly they can multiply. And I think that the emphasis in Genesis five is the same, that it's, it's emphasizing the vast amount of time that these people were alive and having children. Mm. Yeah. Not nearly, not really the fact that they died, as if there was an alternative. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now Enoch. Okay, so he doesn't die. He he goes up, supposedly. Um, you, so, not, maybe I misinterpreted you wrong, but is that a good or a bad thing? It's a thing. So <laughs> okay. um, remember that I said that death is about what you lose. It's mm-hmm. not about something that's inflicted on you. Um, when people get removed from the earth and put into the divine realm, which is what happens to Enoch. Um, they still lose, they still lose everything. So it's kind of like the difference being, being deported from to one place as opposed to another place. Um, they're still ripped out of the human world, taken away from everything that makes human life desirable. And they just go to a different place than the netherworld and i don't actually 
know if they would have considered that better or worse. Um, there's no real text that I could find anyway that contrasts the two options. Um, we do see people going to the divine realm, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes not. They always want to go back. The idea is they don't really want to stay there. It's never their goal to stay there. Um, divine realm is not a place for humans to be. It's not a place that humans are comfortable. And so given a choice, Enoch probably would have remained on the earth. Given a choice between the divine realm and the netherworld, not sure. Um, because I've never seen anything that talks about it in those terms. It, it's possible there is a thing. I'd be very interested to read it if there is. Mm. Um, but I think the reason why that detail is in the text, why, why Genesis wanted to make note of that, is if you look at how long he lives, he lives less than half of the time that everybody else does. So Adam, most of them live between 800 and 900 years. Uh, the last one before Noah lives 700. Enoch lives 300. So in from that detail alone, he dies really, really young. And because leaving the human world is bad, it's what you don't want to do, Normally, dying young is a fate that, fate that is reserved for especially evil people. And so if you see Enoch lives only 300 years, it would be like if we see um, he lived until he was 10 years older than he died. It's like, well, what did he do that earned that? Mm. Um, but in Enoch's case, they say that he was faithful and he walked with God. And so they're kind of showing that he wasn't killed young as any kind of punishment. He wasn't killed at all. He was taken away. Um, this is the same thing happens to Elijah that he gets taken away. And there's probably a significance to that, that we can speculate about, but we don't really know. Hmm. Um, we know that it's the people who, who the people who they leave behind react the same way. It's, it's like death. Um, the person is gone and they're never coming back. They've been removed from everything from the world, um, everything that a human living in the world would want. Um, it happens to, in Gilgamesh, it happens to the flood hero, the person that Gilgamesh is going to see gets taken away from the human world and kind of exiled to this semi-divine realm where he can be immortal, but he's also gone. He's, he's cut off from the human world. And when Gilgamesh goes to visit him, Gilgamesh doesn't want to stay there. There's no indication that he's he intends to take up residence in this place. He wants to learn how to become immortal and then go back home. So the idea is that once leaving the human world, once you're gone, where you went to, whether you went to the netherworld, whether you went to the divine realm, whether you just went into the desert next door, doesn't make a difference. It's all effectively the same. Hmm. Really, really interesting stuff. Okay. So, um, maybe one or two questions left. Not sure. Okay. So, um, yeah, did this, okay. Well, one, do you think God lied? No. Um, I think that what God told them was a warning that if you eat the, eat the fruit of knowledge, of good and evil, if you gain this 
human capacity to establish structure in the world, you will find yourself removed from the structures of the ordered world, because that's what death is. And that turns out to be exactly what happens. They are actually unable Mm -hmm. to establish the structures of the ordered world, despite their best attempts to do so. They try to make themselves clothing, which is the most basic symbol of civilized humanity. That's why nakedness is such a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And they can't even do that. So basically, it's, it's a warning about what will happen because in the mindset that the Genesis author is uh, that what the Genesis author is trying to say is that doing all of the things that civilized humans are supposed to do still won't establish the desirable structures of the human world. So if that's what you're trying to do, then fine you can have that but it's still not going to be the it's still not going to be the completed project yeah all right Um, last question here uh why was adam and eve kicked out of the garden because um what they gained when they got the knowledge of good and evil was the ability to go into the human world and put the human world in order now the garden of eden actually isn't in the human world it's what 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 it's establishing with all of the parallel imagery to the temples that we talked about earlier is that the garden of Eden is actually it's, it's divine space. It's like the top of a mountain or, or mm. this kind of isolated Island. Right. What happens right. to Adam in Genesis two fifteen when God takes him and puts him in the garden is essentially the same thing that happened to Enoch. So when they have to leave the garden, it's because humans really aren't supposed to be there in the divine realm. They're supposed to be in the human realm. So of course they get kicked out because now that they have the human destiny to establish order in the human world, they have to go into the human world to do it. They, they won't be able to establish human order in the divine realm because you can't. Yeah. Yeah. But the, okay. So, you know, a lot of people listening are going to be saying, Hey, you know, that's all that stuff you just said. The text doesn't say that. It says they were kicked out because they couldn't get to the tree, right? It says when what it what it specifically says is um, they have become like us, knowing from good and evil, uh, knowing good and evil. Shall they take from the tree of life and live forever? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is both obviously from the text, but also you can tell by looking at comparative literature. No, they should not live forever. So. The question is why, and it doesn't say why. And if we look at the comparative literature, we can see why it doesn't say why, because the gods have decreed that humans in the human world will not live forever. Mm-hmm. And they never say why. It's just a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is whether or not Adam and Eve would have wanted to stay in the divine realm. And when we read all of, when we read Garden of Eden, we, we translate it as a paradise. We see, put all of these superlative positive qualities on the kind of existence they have there. The answer is, well, of course they would have wanted to stay there. <laughs> but when we, if we look at it as 
this being kind of not the space that humans were made to inhabit and their being there is not one of not the ideal structure of the human world humans mm -hmm. aren't made for this existence humans are made to live in the human world and the audience presumably would have known this there's nothing there's no detail in the text that tells them otherwise the tech the, the state that adam and eve are living in in the garden yeah isn't something that they would have wanted um when we imagine the garden and are confused by this question because because it's because we're imagining it in terms of things that we would want so of course it sounds really nice to be able to just have you know have all the food there and not have to work and mm. which of course that's not even true they do have to work mm. um we think it would be great great to not have to wear clothes do we really maybe some people do i guess but um so it's like it's it's this weird not human-like existence that it's kind of lost on us because we are our, our, our ideas of what a ideally desirable existence would mm -hmm. be should be are different it's more to the point that you have to understand that it's not genesis that genesis doesn't depict the state in eden as in terms that its readers would have found in any way desirable to have hmm. so getting kicked out to that extent is not necessarily it's not necessarily a punishment not something that they would have thought was wrong it's like of course you want to go into the human world you wouldn't want to stay there nobody wants to stay there um but it's more about what they're going to than where they're going mm. from. Yeah. Um, and what they're going to is thorns, thistles, and the cursed ground. And mm. that is also something that you wouldn't want. So you're kind of stuck between between two different sets of undesirables. You have this kind of um, non-human, weird, liminal existence in in a place you're not really supposed to be um, <laughs> without any of the things that you would you would have thought would be like a desirable existence um i guess it's kind of like you you might imagine like mod how modern people might think of being like filthy in a rundown house stoned out of your mind on drugs um is that something you would want um this kind of state that you know lacking it's it might be a in some ways a positive experience but mm. not not what we would consider to be the way that humans are supposed to live um and you know between doing that or being you know living and you know working at some at some horrible job in mm living in squalor and not being able to to pay for your rent and those are kind of the two options it's presenting yeah and you can see that neither of them are very good so getting kicked from one into the other doesn't actually make that much difference it's not yeah it's not really that important it's more about the the state that they're going into and what's important about the state that they're going into is that despite the having the knowledge of good and evil having this divine ability to understand and establish structure mm -hmm. that 
it's not going it, that doesn't change this the position that they're going into yeah yeah all right so just to make sure i understood you right um well um i don't know i'm just trying to anticipate that pushback so um oh yeah no one it, no one's going to like this um <laughs> I, I can't I, and that's why in my in my paper i spent so much time talking about this about why what the desirable world looks yeah. like and also how like we have to understand what the desirable world would have looked like on their terms what do the people who are writing this think is right. good and valuable and desirable yeah and we can't just see it as a kind of rote forensic uh statement of what of what the world was like so it's like it's it's being depicted in this way for a reason the people who are writing the story chose these de depictions and chose chose these words for a reason and they're not just choosing them because that's how it was and then in their own opinion they don't like it but in our opinion we you know we could like it it's more about they chose that because it was something they didn't like and because their readers would know it was bad um and that is a ve that's a very contextual thing to have but it means that when you're trying to translate it instead of translating just the words and saying that you know they had nakedness that's a fact mm -hmm. that good or bad well maybe they didn't like it but i would um you have to say no they had they were missing a thing that everyone knew they should have and then when you translate that, you have to try to think, well, what's a thing, you know, what's a thing that I would think that everybody should have that could be missing in that context? And that's yeah. more an accurate way to understand what it's trying to say. Yeah. Um, so um, probably the last question here. So <laughs> the I just want to really uh, narrow this point here. So, I mean, the, the text of verse 22, it's it's basically... And Lord God said, now that the man has like become one of us, doing good and evil, he must not be allowed. This is the NET translation. Yeah. They're similar translations. He must not be allowed to stretch out his hand, take also from the tree and eat and live forever. And then it says, so different translations translate this differently, but he, it, the next verse is, so the Lord God expelled him from the garden, which seems to imply, hey, you know, he can't do this, so we have to kick him out. Like, do, do you agree that, the this isn't a part where like adam and eve are like hey we got to leave it's god saying hey they can't have the tree of life so we have to kick them out is that do you agree with that or disagree again sort of it's more about how you you know it doesn't it doesn't depict adam like standing there you know clawing for the tree of life and getting dragged out by angels by his ankles <laughs> there's yeah. it actually is um a, a Greek era text that does describe that, oh, um, okay. where it's Adam is essentially dragged away, kicking and screaming, um, begging for the fruit of life. Mm -hmm. um, and Genesis doesn't have that. There's no actually sense of them of them trying. Mm -hmm. uh, and the idea that the gods always say, humans cannot live forever is something that you see a lot you see it in, you see it come up in ecclesiastes you see it in gilgamesh you see it in it's in adapa it's yeah. that 
everybody knows that humans aren't supposed to have this and it's not we don't get to see adam's reaction to this and nobody else ever reacts to this either um there's no in, in the in the greek text i was just talking about in life of adam and eve all of adam's descendants are still just sitting outside the garden pining for the fruit of life um and they have to keep trying to explain to them that no this is we're stuck out here now you can't have it we're stuck out here now you can't have it we're stuck out here now you can't have it but and they're, they're actually looking forward to it, and they said but it will be restored to you in the resurrection and so this they're using the fruit of life as a metaphor for the prosperity of the promised land it's an it's an allegory of of israel hmm. but you don't ever see this see this in genesis and it's judging from the literature that we have access to both elsewhere in the hebrew bible that deals with hmm. this question and in in literature of the ancient near east they don't really see pining for the fruit of life as a or pining for mortality as a viable human vocation uh and so they don't they don't depict adam doing this even enough to tell him that he shouldn't it's like it's almost it's like it's self-evident that you wouldn't mm. um they show mm. they, they go and talk about what they try to do instead what what kind of how they try to live to live forever without immortality whether through their legacy or through their descendants, but they don't ever, they don't actually retell the story of Gilgamesh of having anybody try to re, try to go to the divine realm and retake immortality for humanity and then be told off for it. It's just, they don't seem to think that that's a point that's important to tell. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So maybe I can just um, clarify, or not clarify, but sum up what you're saying just to make sure I got it right. So, Adam, or God saying, hey, um, you know, well, clearly we cannot let him keep this fruit because it's just not something we can do. No explanation for that. Um, but um, they, you know, they they can't have it, so they, you know, they have to be outside of the garden. Is, is that basically the gist? Uh, again, they're not sent out of the garden to keep them away from the fruit. They're, they're not actually barred from the garden at all. They're barred from the tree. So the sword and the cherubim guard the way to the tree of life. Mm. It's more that he they send, they send him out to work the ground from which he's taken, which means he has to go where that is. Mm. So the human, now that the humans have effectively gotten this destiny to set the world in order by producing plants on the earth they need to go where that is you can't um they can't produce order on the earth if they're still living in the divine realm they have to go there first it's like asking you know uh in in the office you you assign somebody okay your job is to go out and build the house and then you send them out of the office of course you do um if they stay in the office, they can't build their house because that's not where it is. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's again, it's less about what they're, what they're being removed from and more about where they're going to and what they're going to do there. Yeah. Now, um, additional question now. So you said that they, um, that that's, that's basically what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to work the ground. Um, does that mean that in the Genesis 
two, where God's saying, hey, you know, you're, you're supposed to be working the ground. That, is that anticipating that where you they are right then was not where they're actually supposed to work the ground? It was supposed to be outside of it? Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Um, but isn't there some idea of like, hey, they're supposed to be taking care of the garden, like, you know, making sure Again, the that, plants are good? That is what Adam gets first assigned to do when he gets taken and put in the garden. Uh but there's no indication anywhere in in the hebrew bible at all of and one day humans are going to be put back in the divine realm to go back to doing that <laughs> so it's more about it's in this putting being put in the circumstance kind of as a demonstration of its unsuitability mm -hmm. that um humans weren't made to live in the divine realm it's a temporary thing and it's not the it's not their place in the world the human the yeah. human the the structure that humans find as their place in the world is not being laborers in the divine realm they belong on earth in the human realm and that's that part of that effect is achieved in Genesis 2 by showing the garden as being an undesirable state of being, mm. part of which is achieved by them existing in this kind of subhuman animal state there. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really, really interesting. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. That's all, all I have. Um, that That's it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't yeah. have that many questions this time, right? Sorry? <laughs> I said I didn't have that many questions. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is going to be quite quite confusing for, for your audience. I haven't had a lot of practice trying to present this um, informally yet to try to, to try to see how uh -huh. how people react and how best to to help make them understand. It's again more important because we come at this story with so many assumptions about what it is and mm -hmm. a list of questions that we're asking and expecting it to yeah. answer and talking through the details of why those are the wrong questions and why the text doesn't answer them is really confusing and really really complicated so it's more yeah. it's less about trying to explain you know why isn't it this why isn't it this why isn't it this which is yeah. a lot of what we've been doing um but about asking kind of from as much of a blank slate as you can why what is it yeah why why are these words being chosen why what does what do these ideas mean hmm. and assuming that you don't know instead of assuming that your default is what you learned in sunday school is going to make it a lot easier to follow and a lot easier to understand yeah yeah that's really 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 good stuff yeah um it's funny you say that you, you haven't had as much uh, presentation on this in front of people considering your dad has like has like almost i don't know if the speech i haven't actually asked him but <laughs> he's like you know done so many presentations on the same topic like he's you know pretty much well he's been he's been refining that public speech over decades now you're um, right <laughs> i mean i only completed this project months ago and yeah i've only ever had to explain it to other academics mm -hmm. uh i don't have i can guess what um what your what a lay audience's pushback yeah. would be 
but I don't actually know. And I don't actually know um, whether the responses, I, I, like any of the answers I gave you here are actually useful. I suspect that um, I need to, instead of trying to answer these questions piecemeal, I need to find a better way to present just, just the broader reframing. But it feels like I'm, I'm behind because we've got centuries of reading this text mm. a certain way. Yeah. And when I say it's the wrong way, um, people want me to try to interact with the assumptions that they have that are wrong and try to explain why they are, mm -hmm. which is kind of what I've been trying to do, trying to show that where they come from, where, where these, both this entire framing of reading the texts as, yeah. as a story about the origin of evil, as a story about um, humans being denied an idyllic state of existence for reasons, um, that all of that is completely not what it's about. And that questions related to that aren't useful questions because they're the answer to that the answer to them is always going to be a history of how it got interpreted that way mm -hmm. which isn't the answer your audience is looking for really and it's not in a it's not always someplace that that something that i am well educated enough to talk on especially not off the cuff in in this kind of context but, so yeah did you did you have something to say there at the end? No, not really. Um, so yeah, it's just I don't. There's always going to be one of the things that I found out when I do when I'm doing these kind of mm. you've read this wrong um, kind of readings. I've I don't have a lot of experience with this one specifically. I did the same thing about um, the portrayal of Satan and demons in the Bible yeah. many years ago, and I've gotten kind gotten more practice talking about that, but. Um, it's it's more about having to try to you have to establish a new framework of how how the how the text is being approached the questions that are being asked and nitpicking the details of all the wrong questions is never going to get you anything valuable i don't think yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense um and uh yeah, no, I, either way, um, you know, all the information you've presented here has been just really helpful. If you want more on that, he's written an entire dissertation on the topic. Um, but no, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. You've been extremely helpful just for my questions, but also for other people's. And I think this will be really helpful as just like new ideas and um, a lot of, I think, really strong arguments here. So thank you so much for coming on here. Um, I mean, is there anything else you want to advertise, like future works or book that you plan on writing? Um, well, I'm currently working on revising the, the dissertation and talking a little bit about, um, a little bit more about Adam and Eve and what they represent and what the mm. details of, of their story is, is talking about. I touched on it a little bit in the dissertation, but I didn't really have space. <laughs> and I'm also doing a project which is somewhat related to that on, um, uh approaches of using the bible to talk about issues of gender and sexuality um mm -hmm. both that should be done and should not be done which has to do a lot again with some of these of asking the wrong questions of the wrong yeah. texts and yeah. having a new framework about questions 
so that's that's coming up yeah that, that'll be really exciting yeah i've been uh, waiting for a, a topic like that um from like a you know scholar like yourself but yeah it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you so thank much you. um we definitely have to have you on in the future. It's been good stuff. But um, wait, thank you so much. Wait, wait, when you get a lot of a lot of bad comments from your audience, uh, you, can, <laughs> you, you can have to back on to argue with them. Yeah, there you go. All right. <laughs> awesome. But thank you so much. I hope you have a great thank rest you. of your night, Dr. Walton. Thank you. Mm -hmm.